and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Let's see, this morning I'm going to teach, uh, talk from Revelation chapter 14. There's a bunch of notes in your handout if you like having something to kind of go along with me. I also encourage you, anytime we're in the Bible, that you would... Uh, You'd be there with me. And so we'll be in Revelation chapter 14. But uh, the other thing I want to do is uh, kind of give you a, this last week. I went to uh, I went to Dallas, got to go down there for a conference and uh, had a lot of fun down there. For me, have you ever had a week that kind of felt like a month? Um, just a lot happened. And then in the last 48 hours, the last 48 hours have felt like um a week themselves. And so a, a lot happened, but uh, enjoyed myself down there. Got to spend time at this conference. Uh, one of the things that really struck me was listening to different um, men from around, men and women from around the country that teach from God's word. Uh, there's some consistent things that the spirit is saying through the church right now, reminding us to be steadfast, reminding us to endure, uh, reminding us to find our hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Uh, some really great consistent things that I'm seeing um, or saw this last week. The other thing that I got to do was uh, if you go to Texas and you don't eat barbecue, you probably did it wrong. Um, and so I've got a buddy who lives down there and uh, he was uh, lived in northern Nevada, was a part of this church. And five, six years ago, he moved down there to take a job. And uh, I got to play some disc golf with him. It's something that we did before he moved away. And um, then got to have some barbecue with him and just enjoy the Dallas area. Um, the, the other thing I will say, when you go on a trip like that and you, you eat lots of good barbecue and you sit at a conference, when you get back and you get on the scale, just watch out. Um, it, was, it was a moment where I was like, wow, I'm supposed to be doing something different. Um, and then on Friday, when, uh, when we went to leave, uh, I had a, my flight was connecting through Denver and they had heavy rainstorms and tornado warnings in Dallas. And so my flight got postponed and postponed and postponed. I missed the connection flight in Denver and I got to sleep in the Denver airport. Um, and if you've never slept in an airport before, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sell you this vacation plan that I have for you. Um, no, I, I don't recommend it. I slept about two hours. And uh, when I got home, I thought, man, it's going to be the time to take a nap. And it turned out that it was the time for our dog to have puppies. And so that was actually really exciting and fun and a big bolt of, of, of energy to me. I mean, I just love our dogs and to see the puppies, it was this really cool thing. Um, uh, the way that she just immediately nurturing kicks in and uh, you just watch what God has done when he brings about life um, and the instincts that he's put in us to protect life, to nurture life and to want life. Um, and so that was kind of a cool thing uh, to watch, but I didn't take a nap. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to do my best. And then when I, when I leave here, you know, you called me and it ain't going to ring on my end because um, I'm going to take a nap. But uh, so, so I'm going to be in Revelation 14. But before we go there, I actually want to go to Joel chapter 3 with you. So if you go in your Bible or on your phone to Joel chapter 3, um, and as you're going there, one of the things that we see when we go through the book of Revelation is that when John has these visions and these dreams, he has given visions and dreams that match what he understands to be true about God. 
He thinks like a first century Jewish person. He dreams like a first century Jewish person. And so the imagery that he has that God gives him in these visions is very much first century Jewish imagery. Now for us at times, that's hard to understand unless we go, Let's, let's take a look at what they believed. Let's go back to the Old Testament, see the things that God taught the people, the promises that he made to them, how he said the promises would happen. Um, and then when we do that, we actually get a lot of insight into what's going on in the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 14 is a chapter of previews of victory, okay? So these, you could almost look at this chapter as sort of a table of contents for the remaining chapters in the book of Revelation, okay? And uh, what we're seeing here is that chapter 13 was kind of a downer. Um, If you weren't with us last week and you read chapter 13, you can go, man, uh, Satan is a real spiritual being that has rebelled against God. Um, He is going to act in the end times through an antichrist, a political world leader, Uh, that is going to deceive people through a religious world system and the false prophet, and many, many people will go astray. Not only is that going to happen in the end times, but it's something that's sort of cyclical throughout human history. Satan is using political world leaders and religious world systems to deceive people into believing that they're fine without God and not turn to Jesus. And so it's kind of a downer chapter. And what 14, chapter 14 is doing for us here is it's saying, but let's not forget God has a plan and he's going to see this through. So read with me in Joel chapter three, starting in verse nine. And what Joel is doing is he is writing uh, prophecy to the nation of Judah that has lost its place, its nation, and has been taken by the Babylonians. And he says in verse nine, talking about primarily looking at how is God going to restore these promises that he made. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for holy war rouse the warriors. Let all the men of war advance and attack. Beat the plows into swords and your pruning knives into spears. Let even the weakling say, I am a warrior. I'm going to tell that's one of my sons today. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Come quickly, all you surrounding nations, gather yourselves. Bring your warriors there, Lord. Let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for I will sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And that decision is not, will they make a decision? It's God's judgment. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will cease their shining. The Lord will roar from Zion and make his voice heard from Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the Israelites. And so, One of the things that would have been present in John's mind when he has visions like this is the Old Testament. He would have also had present in his mind the life of Jesus, right? John wrote the gospel of John. He was one of the disciples that walked with Jesus. He saw everything that Jesus did. One of the things that was so prevalent in the Jewish mindset of this point in time was that they really, really wanted the Messiah to to come because the Messiah was supposed to come, overthrow Rome, and reinstitute the nation of Israel. The promises that were made to David and Second Samuel chapter 7, God was going to make those happen. And so prevalent was this in the mind of the Jewish people that even after Jesus is 
killed for the consequences of our sin. And he's buried and he's raised from the dead. And John sees him raised from the dead. And John uh, sees Jesus for this period of 40 days before hundreds of eyewitnesses. John was one of them. And then at Jesus' ascension, the disciples, they ask Jesus, they say, is it now that you're going to bring about the kingdom of Israel? Like Jesus, you did the death thing on the cross. You defeated sin and death. Um, But there's also all these promises in the Old Testament that say you're going to restore Israel to its place and you're going to judge the surrounding nations and you're going to rule and reign in the line of David. Actually, what the angel Gabriel says to Mary uh, in in preceding Jesus' birth was that you're going to have a son and he's going to sit on the throne of David and his kingdom will last forever. And so they're like, okay, Jesus, are we, are we getting out the swords now? Can we get out the swords now? And you know, when you did the triumphal entry the first time, you had us go and get a donkey. We know this guy that's got a white horse. Would you sit on it? Let's get out the sword and let's set up this kingdom. And Jesus replies to them during the church age. And he says, it's not for you to know the seasons or epics that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the church is here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. There's actually a another gospel that's listed here in Revelation chapter 14, the eternal gospel, and we'll talk about it when we get there, but the church is here to preach the good news that Jesus, God became man, dealt on, uh, dwelt on earth, uh, took away the consequences of sin on the cross, was buried, was raised from the dead, appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses, ascended, and commissioned us to share that message of hope and light with the earth. But John is still dreaming at the end of his life. He's dreaming and he's wondering, when will Jesus return? And how is this going to happen? And it's in that dream that God gives him the vision of the book of Revelation. It's this heartfelt desire for Jesus to return that then leads God to give John this vision that he writes down in the book of Revelation. And so now go to Revelation chapter 14 with me. And listen to the similarities in the language between Joel and what we see here in Revelation chapter 14. He says, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his father's, or who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So the lamb is Jesus and he's standing on Mount Zion. He's in that place where he would return to judge and rule. That's where he is. There's these 144,000. We looked at them other places within the scriptures. Revelation chapter 7 is where we were introduced to them. We understand them to be 144,000 Jewish men, either literally or figuratively in the sense of a complete number. Um, And they are on earth during the time of the great tribulation, this period that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. And their job, as we're going to see in this passage, is to be a witness to the world around them, primarily through their behavior. Uh, That's the, the biggest witness that they have is they live a holy and upright lifestyle. There's no lie in their mouth. Everything that they do um, is in line with truth. And it also says that it has Jesus's name, the lamb's name and the father's name written on their foreheads. And so we saw last week in revelation chapter 13, these guys don't have the mark of the beast, but they have the mark of Jesus and of the father in the way that they think and in the actions that they take with their hands. 
Verse two, I heard a sound from heaven, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. In other words, this song is loud. Um, the sound I heard was like harpists playing their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And so this song is one that only they learn. When we meet um, these, other, these other people, we see uh, the, the four living beasts, we see uh, the, the elders, um, and we met them in Revelation chapter 4. The four living beings are creatures that are around the throne of God. If you go back to Revelation chapter 4 and you read the imagery that that's associated with what they look like. All, everything about them is given to remind us of God's majesty and of his holiness. Um, what they look like is intended to be a reflection of what God looks like, making us go, wow, God is great. God is majestic. God is holy. There's nobody like him. So that's what they're there to do. The, the 24 elders, what they represent um, is either believers throughout all the ages or church age believers. I think church age believers makes the most sense because in our timeline of understanding the book of Revelation, Jesus, re before he returns, he raptures the church. He calls us off of this earth. And these 24 elders represent the believers during the church age, the totality of the church. And what they're known for is worshiping Jesus. Um, each and every time we see them, they sing a song. Um, and the same thing with the four living creatures. Here, it's interesting, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they go, this is a song we haven't heard before. And we have a hard time even learning it. This isn't a musical problem, right? It's not that they sing like I do and need the volume to be loud so you can't hear me, right? This isn't a musical problem. This is, they have not experienced what the 144,000 went through. Uh, basically, what's going on here is you can't sing the song of persecution and difficulty unless you've gone through it. Knowing this song does not come from comfort and ease. It comes from knowing persecution. It comes from seeing the mark of the beast on the, the entire world. It comes from uh, being in this position where standing out and standing up for Jesus costs you something. And so they're able to sing this song. It's specific to these 144 Jewish people that lived during the Great Tribulation. It says of them, this 144,000, that they are redeemed, that they, the purchase price has been paid for them and they are experiencing freedom. Do you understand that when Christ went to the cross, he paid the purchase price for each and every one of us to be redeemed, to be bought out of slavery to sin. But did you know that not everyone experiences that freedom? Christ paid the bill. The, 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 the chains are free. The lock is undone, but many people still live with the chains on. And so as Christians, uh, we want to live in that freedom. We don't want to live chained to our old ways and our old life, but we want to recognize that the price has been paid. Uh, set the chains down, open the prison door, walk out in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. I also want you to hear this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't experienced what it is to be freed from your sin, you haven't experienced what it is to be freed from death, you still feel like there are times where maybe you get a little bit of life, but on the whole, you know something's wrong. Jesus wants to free you. He has redeemed you and he wants to allow you to live in freedom. It says that they're redeemed. Verse four, it says that these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. Uh, either that could be taken literally as well or within the book of the Old Testament, we see several examples where 
uh, the, the entire life of the prophet Hosea, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel chapter 23. What God does is he compares his relationship to Israel to like having a bride. He says, you're, you're my bride and we're intended to be close and we're intended to be uh, united to one another and no one else. And he says what happens with the nation of Israel is that they actually become a wife who is a prostitute. She, she harlots herself out to idolatry. She gives herself away instead of being united to her husband, instead of us as people being united to our God, we give ourselves away in immorality to idols. And he says that these 144,000, they have had nothing to do with that. How? Have you ever wondered how to beat idolatry in your life? He says, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Are you struggling with lifelessness? You have the same sin beat you over and over again? You wonder why you can't break this cycle that exists within the patterns of your flesh? Who are you walking with? Do you follow the lamb wherever he goes? Would you follow him into what's right and ethical and moral? Or sometimes Jesus' definition is good, but other times I'm not so sure. I think the culture around me might have a better definition than what the word of God says. I think the culture around me might have a better definition than what I know to be true from God. Who are you following? The next thing it says about these 144,000 is they, re they were redeemed from humanity as first fruits for God and the lamb. And what that first fruits phrase means is it's they precede others who believe during the great tribulation period. Their witness, and what's their witness? No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Their moral and ethical purity as they follow Jesus acts as a testimony to the outside world. They will not take the mark of the beast. They will not think like the world thinks. They will not act like the world acts. They are committed to following Jesus and Jesus alone. And because of that, their lives act as a testimony and it causes people to question where they're going for life and turn to Jesus. This should also be true of Christians. You and I, as followers of Jesus, our lives should be marks of holy, righteous, ethical, moral behavior. Not according to what the world says, not according to my standards, but according to what God has revealed through his word. And so we live moral and upright lives. And because of our moral and upright lives, as we follow Jesus, that we're then given a platform to speak from. Uh, see, uh, they can't, there were those who couldn't sing the song of persecution because they hadn't been through it. But if you try and share who Jesus is, if you say he's light and live in dark, darkness, if you say he is the way, the truth, and the life, yet follow the world, you don't have a platform to speak from. If your life does not match your message, you will not be heard. So there's this idea of God's own people, his own possession, living with him, acting as a light to the nations, showing where to go for life, showing what it is to be free from sin. Not perfect, 
Uh, one of the things that we have to recognize as Christians is I have not arrived, but I'm definitely not where I was. I'm not all the way there, but if you compare who I am today with who I was uh, 20 years ago, I'm not even close. If you compare who I am today with who I was 15 years ago, it's not even close. You know, like I'm continually being transformed to the likeness of Jesus, not because of what I have done, but because I'm walking with him. And if I walk with him, I will undoubtedly end up emulating him. Because his love and his kindness, his compassion, his goodness, his righteousness, they're infectious. And I'm transformed by them as I'm near him. And so that's what these people will do. But the messianic language is very strong and clear. When Jesus returns on Mount Zion, when the lamb comes back, he's going to win. What will this victory look like? Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Um, when I was down there in Dallas, uh, there were some folks from the south, and one of, they definitely would have said, everybody, everywhere is going to hear this, right? Like everybody, everywhere is going to hear this. This is a global message that everyone will hear and understand. It says, he spoke in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. So he says this eternal gospel, what is it? That we should fear God, that we should live in awe of him, that we should be amazed at who God is, that we should never think that we're on the same plane with him. He is the creator and we are the creation. We, we, we have to give him glory. He gets first placed. He is preeminent in every decision that I make. Uh, before I make a decision with my finances, I talk to Jesus. Before I make a decision with my marriage, I talk to Jesus. Before I make a decision in parenting, I talk to Jesus. Before I decide what school I'm going to, before I decide what friends I'm going to allow to influence me, before I decide anything, I'm going to talk to Jesus. He is first. He is preeminent. He gets glory. And the other thing that it says about this eternal gospel is that God will come and he, not might, not could, he will judge. Uh, Exodus 34, God is describing himself and he says that he will not leave sin unpunished. Not going to happen. That there will be an accounting for rebellion against God. There will be accounting for the brokenness of humanity. And there will be an accounting for how we have disregarded him and hurt others. That will happen. But the other thing that we know about God is that he is full of loving kindness. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is compassionate. He understands. And so one of the things that we understand about judgment is that when God judges, he can't just sweep it under the rug. He can't do it. Um... I shared with you that our dog had puppies this morning and she was so, fo or yesterday, but she was so focused on 
taking care of the dog. She's drinking broth and we're giving her water and we're making sure that she's getting lots of nutrients. But she's so focused on the dog, on her puppies, that when we say, hey, Eden, do you want to go outside and do your business? Do you need to get up and go to the bathroom? She's like, I'm really focused right here. And so we went to bed and uh, we came out in the morning into the garage. We're like, kind of smells in here. And uh, she, she had gone to the bathroom in our garage. There's mats down, kind of turned it into a gym. And the, the, the urine had seeped underneath the mats. You couldn't see it but you knew it stunk. So we had to peel up the mats and we had to actually clean it up. It's the same way with sin. You cannot just sweep it under the rug because it still stinks. It still brings death. But here's what I want you to know. I'm going to say this several times this morning, that the accounting for sin, either you and I can step up and say, I'll foot the bill. It'll cost us eternity. Or we can say, God, your son Jesus screamed from the cross that it was paid in full. The accounting for sin, the debt that I owed, was completely paid off by Jesus. That's what it means to be redeemed. My death sentence is completely paid off through Jesus' death on the cross. And because of his death on the cross, I am now freed from sin, the consequences from sin, and I'm raised up as a new creation made to be God's child living in step with the Lamb. And so the eternal gospel is one that we know as well. We have a creator. He has made us. He loves us. We've rebelled against him. We fought against him. The sin in our lives stinks. We can't clean it up by our own abilities. We need a redeemer and a savior to wipe it away completely clean so that we can be made whole. And that's what these, this angel pronounces. Verse 8, I saw a second angel following and it's followed and it said it has fallen babylon the great has fallen she made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality which brings wrath and so the second angel says that this world system that satan has set up with a political leader and a religious system that would lead us to believe that we can find life in something other than god that is going to be wiped off the map it will fall the sexual immorality is liking it again to moral, ethical, and spiritual impurity. And, and he says that that brings wrath. And when you hear the word wrath, you have to understand that this is God's fitting enmity of sin. It's proper and right for God to hate sin. And you say, well, oh, that, that sounds a little extreme, wrath. This judgment thing sounds a little extreme. Have you ever had someone hurt you? Have you ever had someone hurt someone that you love? Have you ever so seen evil done and it seems like the person gets away with it? Have you ever harmed someone and you knew you were wrong? When, when God sees his children hurting each other over and over again, this is the story before the flood. God looks at the world and we see that the intention of people's hearts were evil all of the time. And so God says, I'm going to step in and I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to wipe sin off the earth with a flood. And then what the flood shows us is God's serious, his serious handling of sin. It's right and fitting 
that God has wrath towards sin. Go on with me here. Another angel in verse nine, a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. It's kind of a lot to take in, isn't it? If anyone worships the beast or its image or receives his mark on its hand or its forehead, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, tormented with fire, sulfur, all in the sight of the holy angels. And the this is saying justice will be served. This cup of wrath, I, I, you read a passage like this, if you go through the book of Revelation and you don't at some point say, whose side am I on? I think you're reading the book wrong. Because that's what it's definitely intended to make us ask. Whose side am I on? Am I with God or am I against God? Do I long for his embrace or do I push him away? Do I trust him for what's right and what's good? Is my mind his? Is my heart his? Do I want him to cause me to love what he loves and to want what he wants? Or am I, do I really think I'm okay on my own? It definitely makes us ask this question. And the, the, the idea of being on our own, this is really scary. Uh, and I think to a certain degree, the Bible has that hell, fire, and brimstone thing going on. But the other thing, uh, do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember the terror and the anxiety that he felt? So much that as he was praying, he sweat blood. He looked at God's wrath that he was going to take. He was going to drink God's wrath, full strength in this cup. And he said, God, this is, <laughs> I'm your son and we're one, but this is terrifying me. And I'm experiencing anxiety to, to, to extreme levels because your wrath is, it's weighing on me. And I fear taking it, but not my will, yours be done. And so he went to that cross and the cup of wrath that was intended for you and I, he drank it. He said, give me, give me Kurt's judgment. Give me your judgment. I'll take the cup and I'll drink it for you. Full strength. Remember when they offered him sedatives and he said, no. He drank it full strength. And that's his love for us, but it's also God's justice for us that Christ drank the cup and we do not have to be here for this. 
Verse 12, he says, this calls for endurance from the saint who keep God's command and their faith in him. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. Isn't that an interesting picture? It says that they follow Jesus everywhere that they go. And it causes them to be without deceit. It causes them to live righteous. And as they follow Jesus, wherever he goes, their works follow them wherever they go. In other words, a life following Jesus develops a testimony worth hearing. And so you have these three angels proclaim this. And let us not forget Jesus in all of this. Verse 14, then I looked and there was a white cloud and one like the son of man, that was Jesus's favorite messianic title for himself, primarily from the book of Daniel, was seated on a cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple crying in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud. Use your sickle to reap for the time has come to reap since the harvest of the earth is ripe. That word ripe doesn't mean like that's perfection. Uh, it, it has the idea of being withered. It's actually sat there too long. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Then another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the temple. Yet another angel who had authority over fire. And this is talking about judgment when it talks about fire. Came from the altar and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle. Use your sharp, sharp sickle to gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth because the gra its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city and the blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. Let me do this ever so slightly out of order. The, the second angel that we see here, he actually joins Jesus in the harvest of what is shrunken on the vine. And then the word ripe shows up again. The first time it means that it's shrunken on the vine. The second time means that it's like overripe, that God has been patient and he's given opportunities for repentance, but this has just gone to the point where we got to do something about it. And, and so it's not perfection that it indicates, but it's the state of being dried up. But then it's also the state where it's ripe into the the point that it necessitates judgment and destruction. God's patience is, is overwhelming in our lives. He's so patient with the world. He's so patient with you and I, giving us opportunity after opportunity to trust him and follow him. But there comes a point, um, either death or his return, uh, that the opportunity ends. And so we have to decide what we do with Jesus and whose side we're on in this life. And, and then this third angel, it, it instructs the angel before it, and it tells him to, to then take all of this, to harvest it, and to put it into the wine press so that it can be crushed under his foot. Uh, if you know your Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of Adam and Eve, and then the curse that falls on humanity because of the fall in Eve, uh, of Adam and Eve. And then there's this promise in Genesis 3.15 that, uh, to Satan. And the promise to Satan is that there will come someone from Eve's line that will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bite 
him on the ankle, but he will actually crush the serpent's head. And so this crushing right here, it's of sin, it's of death, it's of evil, it's of Satan. And, and so this is being promised that it's going to happen. And the language here is, it's like thorough, complete judgment. It's trampled outside the city. It's this is a reference to the battle of Armageddon and the blood f- flowed out of the press up to horses, bridles for about 180 miles. I don't know if you ever stood next to a horse. That's like, I'm not that tall, but we're talking about serious picture of complete judgment. And then I want to finish by helping you see Jesus in this passage. It says in verse 14 that he was on a white cloud and like the son of man seated there and he had a golden crown on his head. Um, when we were in chapter 13 last week, we saw that uh, Satan, he has this 10 nation confederation and there's this dragon with 10 heads and each of the 10 heads has crowns on it. And those crowns were called diadems. And so what Satan does as he sets up the world is he puts uh, people in positions of authority and he puts these diadems that resemble their authority on their heads. And so that's what a diadem was. It was like, I'm the king. I'm in authority. I have the position of rulership. The crown that Jesus wears here is a different crown. It's called a Stephanos crown. And it was given to those who had won a race. And it was given to them as a reward for what they had done. And so picture this with me. Jesus shows up to the scene and here's uh, these people who think they're in positions of authority wearing their diadems. We rule. We have power. We're in control. And Jesus shows up and he says, yeah, I see your crown, but check this one out. I earned it. Uh, I, I don't just have some crown that was given to me by somebody else. I've earned this crown. And how did Jesus earn that crown? See, Christ wears this crown of gold that he has earned because he wore another crown. He wore that crown of thorns. He took that crown of thorns. Do you know what the crown of thorns was? It was was mockery. And they would say, hail to the king of the Jews. Look at this little pretend king. Thinks he's the king of the Jews. Thinks he's the king of the universe. Hail to him. Put a purple robe on him. Strip him naked. Let's make fun of this guy thinks he's a king. Do you know who actually deserves that mockery? You and me. Because we were willing to stand in front of God and say, I know better than you. I wear the crown. I am the king of my little world. I am the ruler and the authority in my life. I am autonomous and I choose for myself what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, a lot of the times I'm just a sheep that goes along with culture if I'm really honest with myself, but I'm pretending like I've got this under control. The irony that our culture thinks that they think for themselves and just do what everybody else does. Like, it's, it's nonsense. It deserves mockery. And what Jesus does when he goes there and he takes the crown of thorns is he's actually wearing our shame. He's wearing our sin. He's wearing our little fake pretend kingdoms on himself and dying in our place. He's redeeming us. He's dying the death that we deserve so that the cost would be paid in full so that we could be free and inside his family. No longer rebels, but sons and daughters. No longer enemies, but friends. You realize how ridiculous it is that the scripture says that if we're in Christ, we can call God our friend. When before, 
we were absolutely his enemies? So let me finish by asking you this. Uh, Whose side are you on? Do you wear your own crown still? Do you, do you genuinely believe that you're good on your own? Do you really think that Babylon the Great, this fallen world system that we live in, has the answers? You got a little question mark there. You know, I'm not so sure. Like, I understand everybody says that we should be compassionate. I understand we should love and, uh, you know, love is love. But, but love isn't love. God is love. And if God is love, then not only is he an inexhaustible resource, but his definition of love would be correct as well. And so at every turn, Jesus is fairly confrontational to our question mark, but he's also very compassionate. He also understands our doubts. He understands what it is that we just go along with the world around us. He knows our brokenness. He he wouldn't have come and worn our crown otherwise. He wouldn't have gone to a cross for us otherwise. He knows. He understands. He cares. And so what we want to do right now is we want to take communion together. And this time of communion is it's going to remind us of Jesus' body broken on that cross for us and his blood shed on our behalf. One of the great things that the new covenant teaches us, and Jesus says that his blood was shed for the institution, the beginning of the new covenant. One of the things that the new covenant teaches us is that we're, we're made new, we're righteous, we're holy, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. We're given a new heart and a new set of desires. So instead of just following the world around us, we begin to follow Jesus. And don't forget what this passage says. If we follow Jesus will be changed to look like him, will live a life that is blameless without laws, without lies. And the good works that Jesus has us do will follow us. They'll create a testimony worth hearing. And so as non-Christians, what I want you to do, if you, if you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus and you're here with this this morning, first, I want to say thank you. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're searching. I'm so glad you're wondering. But as the cup goes around, just let it pass you and take in the imagery. Listen to the song. Understand what's going on. If you are a Christian, this is a wonderful time for us to proclaim what Jesus has done for us to ourselves, to each other, and to be inspired to then share it in the world around us. Let me pray. Father, this morning we we continue to be grateful for what you've done for us. We thank you that though you are just and you cannot leave sin unpunished, you did not leave us without a way out. You did not leave us to have to pay the tab. But in grace, your son Jesus has paid that for us. In mercy, he has removed the consequences from us. And so as we take this time of communion, uh, remind us that you're with us. Remind us that you care about us. Remind us of our security in you. Remind us of our our hope in you. Give us endurance and steadfastness as you transform our minds day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.